Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. I've been in the family office world for 20 years and I've always been interested in how people make good investment decisions and if it is possible to teach these skills in the family office context. This podcast speaks to investment and business thought leaders, as well as founders and experts in the investment world to hear their great stories and insights. Today, we're speaking with Logan Allen, founder and managing partner of FinVC, a global fintech venture firm investing in B2B SaaS companies with over $1 billion in assets under management. Prior to founding FinVC, Logan was vice president at SoFi Ventures and has had advisory and operating roles at Light Street Capital, Formation 8, Zanbato, Adapar, Point Finance, and One Hope Wine. He began his career in consulting for Capgemini and held leadership positions at PwC, City National Bank, and Atlantic Trust. Logan was educated at Duke and Stanford. We talked today about Logan's interesting career, his outlook for fintech, and why he avoids social media. Logan is one of my favorite people to go to for deep insights, and I'm sure you will enjoy today's discussion. Please note this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guest or host should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. Why don't we kick off by going through your interesting background? Spent my time growing up in Europe, to start from the very beginning. My father, Tom, who was a corporate executive for McDonald's, helped start McDonald's in Europe. And so the first place that McDonald's was started in Europe was Frankfurt, Germany, because the Germans' diet looked pretty similar to what you get at McDonald's. And there was a base, a U.S. Air Force base, an Army base at Frankfurt. And so I was born in Frankfurt and then followed the hamburger around Europe. Thankfully, McDonald's decided to set up their HQ in London. So I spent my formative years in London, but always with American parents, so never developed an accent, unfortunately. And then moved to Chicago, Western suburbs as a middle schooler, and then stayed in Chicago for a little bit before moving to the Bay Area. And that was really where my life took a turn in the sense that I was in Silicon Valley in the late 90s. And so I ended up being there from basically 94 through to 99. And so when I graduated high school, the markets were falling apart. And that was a pretty formative experience, not only because a lot of my friends and their families lost a great deal, but it also was my first cycle. And so what was the cycle like as a high school student? What were you seeing before it came off? Yeah, but you were aware of it in the sense that all of your friends, parents, and so forth worked in tech or touched tech. We were actually in the restaurant business. My dad was at Gordon Biersch at the time as the CEO, and we were owners there. And so I was working in Gordon Biersch, and you just could palpably feel the change. Everything was going up and to the right, and working became a deep, dark, All everything that we thought was true was wrong. And subsequent to that, going through every other cycle, it just felt like I had at least a basis in that feeling. And that developed my first sense of pattern recognition. The other topic that I've brought up in prior conversations is I was a chess player competitively. And when I went to Duke undergrad in 99, Duke didn't have a chess team. And so I started one. We are now corporate sponsors for the Duke chess team at Finn. And that also developed a significant amount of pattern recognition and understanding how to see around corners and forecast in the right way. Interest in computers? I really was more interested in sports and game and competition 
and business. And none of my family members were technical. I was first introduced, like every other kid in third or fourth grade, to Max and played Oregon Trail and learned how to use a word processor. And that was my introduction to computers. And my dad actually bought a computer. I still remember this. It was gigantic in the 80s when we were living in France. And he'd be back in in his office working on the computer, and it was always so fascinating. And it was a green screen back then, so I knew of computers and what they potentially represented, and the power of those to do things that you couldn't do on your own. But I never really got into it until, frankly, college, and I studied computer science at Duke, and then studied economics and public policy while I was there. Really didn't know what I wanted to do candidly until I went to an internship. At Smith Barney, my summer of my junior year at the Merck in Chicago, and these internships, you get this incredibly glossy veneer from Citigroup, and then they said, "Come learn finance, come learn capital markets, come learn wealth management." And you show up, and they hand you a phone, and you start cold calling. And summer of my junior year, which would have been 2002, I was cold calling the entire summer, eight in the morning until five o'clock at night calling up what were hopefully prospective retirees and offering them retirement services and then handing it over to a broker whenever we got a lead. And I was the highest producing intern in that office. And I would like to think the highest producing intern of all time, but who knows. But I learned how to talk to people and I learned a lot about incentives and work-life culture and politics and so forth in that office. And those are some of the hardest working people in the world where you're a Smith Barney broker and you're dialing for dollars every day and you're following the markets. Every morning you're looking at what's happening to the markets, you're following what's happening in the 10-year, and they teach you some of that stuff, although you mostly learn it through osmosis around the water cooler and obviously through your undergrad studies. But that was a pretty formative experience, and I decided that the only path I really had at that point was to go to law school and determine that I was done studying and doing academics and decided to work for a living. And so I did what every undergraduate would do when they don't really know what they want to do, I went into consulting <laughs> because in consulting, you're an expert at everything. And my first job at a company called Capgemini, I went into the office first day of work and they looked at my very limited resume, which included Gordon Biersch as a busboy effectively and working at Smith Barney as a cold caller. And they said, obviously deep expertise in financial services, let's put you in the financial services group. And so I fell into FinTech completely by accident that one day when somebody in HR, whose name I wish I had written down, decided I was gonna be in the financial services practice at Capgemini. And that was really the inception of financial technology, both in building it from scratch, using proprietary development resources onshore and offshore. We had thousands of people in India coding and building software for the likes of Merrill, Goldman, and so forth. And so I was spending all my time on Wall Street inside of the basements, that's where they put all of us in technology back then, helping these companies figure out how to bring new technology to bear on antiquated, primarily manual processes. And that's where I start and then worked in consulting, really enjoyed this kind of portfolio approach to life, which is the way I describe what I do today. But back then, very similar. I was working with five or six accounts helping them figure out different problems from new account opening to portfolio management to portfolio accounting to CRMs. And then ultimately got tired of being on a plane 365 days a year and decided to go in-house for a client in City National Bank. And that created this really unique opportunity to effectively be in my own sandbox, helping a very sleepy entertainment regional bank build out wealth management, 
RIA capabilities, private banking capabilities to offer to very wealthy entertainers, which is a whole different story. This was in LA. So I moved from New York to LA as part of that job. And after living in New York as for at that point, eight years, and you and I spent time together at PwC when I was there, and I, that was my last consulting gig. And that was when I started working with family offices and a number of other tools where you're effectively taking the same technology that was applied in these institutional cases to family offices, to hedge funds, to private equity firms. And so I really got, by the time I was done with management consulting, a full spectrum visibility into all the different consumers of, of fintech. And it wasn't really cool enough to be called fintech back then, but that's what we were implementing. And then City National Bank turned into a role at Invesco. And then at Invesco, I was spending so much time in Silicon Valley, living between LA and effectively on a plane. And in Silicon Valley, at that point, a lot of my friends from high school were working in tech or venture capital. They were all running around in hoodies. And this was kind of 2008, 2010 timeframe, which was a phenomenal time to start a company, much like I think we're in that similar type of period now. They all seemed to be having a lot more fun than I was, and I was still wearing a suit every day. And my life was not my own. And so I decided to leave and do two things. One, go work at SoFi, which at the time was circa a dozen people in a conference room and very little clarity on what it was to become. How did you meet Mike? Mike Cagney and I met in 2003. And that was one of my first projects at Capgemini. So my first two projects, first three projects at Capgemini, one was for ADP, very interesting, sleepy payroll platform that if I had to guess back then, I would have thought would have fallen out of favor, but it is as dominant as ever in payroll services. They own over a third of the market. Two, working for a mortgage bank selling non-prime loans in Southern California called Option One Mortgage, went out of business, shocker. And then third was for Wells Fargo. So we go out to Wells Fargo in San Francisco and they say, hey, our advisor desktop technology is not very good. Our advisors complain about it all the time. They can't service their in the right way. We want you, Capgemini, to go pick a new technology. And so we surveyed the market and I was a lowly analyst on the account and we discovered this company called Finiplex. And Mike's first company was Finiplex. He was the CEO there. And when he walked into the room, I really felt like he was one of the smartest guys I had ever met. He was one of the best prop traders at Wells, worked with them for a long time, had a lot of institutional knowledge and had a view on what they needed and the integration with the backend systems of which there were many that were both kludgy and vast. And uh, we worked together in the trenches for a year and a half and became very close. Fast forward to end of 2011, early 2012, Mike was graduating from Stanford and building SoFi. At the time it was called Social Finance. And we got sued by the nonprofit that owns the name Social Finance. And that was the first of many cease and desist letters I think the company received. And uh, we changed the name to SoFi. But it was supposed to be a really ESG-oriented business, helping millennials in particular get out from underneath their student debt and better underwriting student loans on the origination side using alumni dollars. So it was this idea of peer-to-peer lending set up between alums with money and students with none and giving them better rates and a better experience where we could do underwriting in three to five minutes and get them set up with a student loan. That very quickly became more focused refinancing business, turns out to be easier to underwrite people with income and a big securitization opportunity, but also a wedge into a long-term relationship with millennials who were clearly hungry for better technology, better service and a more intimate relationship 
with the brand that was their bank. And we then obviously, as, you, as we all know now, added a number of other verticals over time, including other types of loans, brokerage, crypto, and so forth. And that really drove to really a pretty incredible business, albeit a very challenging one from a contribution margin standpoint, and ultimately a very challenging profitability picture for the company, which is why for us, we've really avoided consumer SMB and crypto businesses at Finn. So that, that kind of pivots the story a little bit where I started at SoFi, went to Stanford and pursued what's called the Sloan Fellowship, which is a one-year MBA effectively. They call it a Master of Science in Management. Worked at SoFi throughout that process, transitioned into an advisory role, and really tried to help Mike alongside that journey, but wanted to continue to take a portfolio approach ended up working with a guy named Joe Lonsdale. Joe and I got along on a number of levels. We were both chess players and we were both really interested in using technology to make the wealth management and financial services world far more automated, far more accessible. Now, did you meet Joe right after he left Palantir? I actually, I did, and I met him through his brother, Jeff, because Jeff was very close to Mike and worked with Mike on his hedge fund. And I was talking to Jeff about what I was focusing on at Invesco at the time and said, hey, we're looking at aggregation technology. And he said, you should really meet my brother, Joe. And early on, helping Joe think through areas like, how do we scale out a par? What do we, who do we go after? What does this product look like? And worked very closely with the CEO at the time, Mike Paulus, who's terrific. And then worked on Zambato, which is now one of the largest private market ATSs globally in helping understand how can we take alternatives and help provide access to both institutional investors and family offices. And that was a lot of fun and a tremendous platform and still really scaling nicely. And then third was working with a number of VCs. I got together with Founders Fund and Ribbit and Andreessen and was trying to support all of their portfolio companies as an advisor because back at Stanford, I just got very enamored with this idea that I wanted to be a VC and a private equity investor and take a portfolio approach to making as large of an impact on the industry as possible because I decided that if I was an operator in one business and going deep, that was interesting and I could make an impact. But if I worked and took a portfolio approach, both in providing capital expertise and rolling up the sleeves, hands-on support, that actually long-term would create exponential impact. And so that's why I went down the venture path, but I got told very thoughtfully by every VC I went to to apply for a job, hey, you need more hands-on entrepreneurial operating experience and what better way to do that than working across a number of companies at the same time. And when I started investing then more professionally, working with Joe on Formation 8 and then subsequently at Light Street Capital, I recognized that I am not good at anything else except for fintech. <laughs> which is something that when you wake up to and you're sitting there in an IC meeting and people are talking about biotechnology and healthcare and VR, and you have nothing to contribute to the conversation, nor as a fiduciary and an IC voting member, do you feel really good about voting on something that you don't have 100% conviction around? And that's why I think the generalist model is constrained. And I think you go back to 2006 when Cambridge Associates started measuring generalist versus specialist performance, it's unequivocal that specialists have outperformed generalists while taking on less risk. And we're big believers in that, obviously. And as a result, I decided to go back to SoFi, work with Mike, work with the board on taking the company public, investing off our balance sheet and acquiring off our balance sheet 
That was a really attractive proposition. And I thought I would be at SoFi for another five plus years. And then ultimately, hopefully start my own business and firm. And as we all know, Mike, I got asked to leave by the board and the entire management team left. So I'm sitting there in January of 2018 and I'm meeting with the interim CEO, Tom Hutton and CFO, Steve Freiberg, both of whom were handed a very difficult problem, but went, in, went into the office every single day. I helped them in any way I could because I was technically one of the longest tenured employees there and really felt a duty to help transition, which ultimately became Anthony Noto. And when he took over as CEO, I transitioned out and started Fit. So if it weren't for that, I would have would still be at SoFi and ho hopefully we would have taken it public in 2018 when markets were a lot more generous. But I started Finn faster as a result. And frankly, I didn't have the confidence to start Finn when I left SoFi. And so I talked to a lot of generalists, talked to a lot of specialists about joining them, and they were all chasing consumer SMB and crypto native businesses. And having been inside of SoFi and looked at the market and was actively investing at SoFi, I just couldn't get excited about those models. And the public markets, particularly as related to Lending Club and OnDeck at that time, weren't very kind to those models either. They looked at those businesses and they saw a balance sheet, they saw credit risk, they saw regulatory risk, and they really started equating those to tangible book value businesses versus tech multiple businesses. And I said, nobody's focusing on the B2B fintech companies, what I started calling at that time, boring fintech. And so that's why Fin was born. It just felt like there was an underserved part of the market, huge opportunity, big wave that everybody else was ignoring. And so I focused in on B2B fintech. I decided I wanted to only hire partners and team members who had deep operating experience in both corporate experiences and startup experiences, and maybe had some degree of track record as an angel or at other firms in my hiring plan. And then third, when we were looking at the cap table at SoFi or in my other ventures as an entrepreneur, it was just night and day from the venture investors, angels, family offices, and so forth that were on the cap table that were actually adding value. And what did that look like? It needed to be a formalized operating playbook if it was going to be repeatable and frankly, long-term supportive and move the needle beyond just the passive capital. And so we de we've developed an operating playbook here where we have focused on business development and corporate development. We feel like those are the two things where you can really move the needle. It's tangible. It's easy to get your arms around. It's easy to describe. And on business development, that's connecting our companies into banks, asset managers, and wealth managers, insurers, other fintechs, and corporates. I think it might be interesting just to go back for one second sure. to when you started it at SoFi, was there a tipping point when you thought to yourself that fintech was a thing? Because if you remember back then, everybody was saying these are yeah. low margin, challenging businesses. Nobody's ever going to be able to get these, yeah. lift these things out. Sure. So, so if I was started in 2011, joined in 2012, at that point you had PayPal, Prosper, Lending Club, and SoFi. You had four players. PayPal was obviously very consumer focused, started to move into some SMB later, but that first wave of fintech and the first wave of fintech in any geo in the world is always a consumer one. Effectively, consumers are underserved by the banks. You get an intergenerational shift, you have accessibility problems, et cetera, and a fintech emerges to solve that problem with better technology, better service, and faster capabilities. 
the challenge becomes, to your point, your contribution margin becomes very difficult to sustain because you're making money off of either gain on sale lending spreads or off of interchange. And that doesn't really work on a, a lifetime value basis or an LTV basis for those clients when your CAC, your cost of acquisition is very meaningful. Same thing happens with the second wave of fintech, which is SMB oriented. And Square was obviously the first player in that space in the US. And then the third wave is very much B2B. And that's it's B2B because the banks, asset managers, all the incumbents in those spaces wake up and they say, who are all these incumbent fintechs or who are all these fintechs nipping at our heels? And that creates a lot of challenges for them and explaining it to their board and their shareholders. And obviously they invest deeply in, in B2B software in order to keep pace. They're also historically, they had invested in proprietary development, but I think have very quickly realized really only in the last two to three years they're not very good at building technology from scratch and they should partner with SaaS software and API providers. When we spoke, we had coffee pre-COVID and I remember you were in New York to raise 70 million. And then I look on Twitter and FinVC is 1 billion. I'd love to know how do you scale a company that fast? What kind of challenges did you have? So I started off as a solo GP because I was told by multiple VCs who I respected that beyond portfolio risk, the number one risk in a venture firm is partner risk or people risk. And so I founder dated as one does in starting a business and really didn't find anybody that I had conviction around starting Finn with. And so I started to bring on venture partners. Part time was paying them some carry, not giving them a salary and really just a testing grounds for building the team out. And from there, started hiring associates and more junior team members, many of whom who have risen to, to be partners of this firm. And that was a very challenging process. And frankly, hiring is, I still think, the hardest part about building a venture firm, only probably eclipsed by raising capital. And so my initial capital, I sought to raise a $60 million flagship early stage fund, and then subsequently spun up SPVs to invest in growth equity, realizing that it was frankly easier to raise capital deal by deal versus in a fund structure, at least initially, as I built track record. But that first $60 million was massively difficult. Even though I had a little bit of a track record, a little bit of a name in fintech, there are some incredibly well-established firms in fintech and generalists who are investing in the space so they were really making a bet on me. And so it was about relationship building, telling the story of why we were different and would be different and making upfront promises on what we would deliver that thankfully we did. And so for that first fund cycle, flagship one and what we ended up calling Horizons One, which was a series of SPVs on the growth equity side where we raised approximately 100 million. So 160 million in cycle one. We then went out in 2021 and we're on a three-year fundraising cycle and have stayed and will continue to stay disciplined around that. And I believe that's fundamental from a pacing vintage diversification and portfolio construction perspective. We ended up raising over 650 million of committed capital in the second fund cycle, along with a $300 million SPAC. And that, that was humbling. By that point, we had about a dozen people. We had real markups. We had an initial exit. And the story was working. And moreover, we had referenceable CEOs and founders who had given us a 95% net promoter score. 
So annually we take a net promoter score. Back then we were taking it quarterly because we only had 15, 20 companies. Now we have 120 companies, so we do it annually. And the question is, are you gonna recommend us to other founders? Yes or no? Very simple on a scale of zero through 10. And we're really proud of that number because it shows that we're adding value beyond capital and delivering on the brand promise. So you have a very interesting proprietary in-house system called Lighthouse AI. Is this, it reminded me a little bit of Helios from Circle Up. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do. Ryan Callback, the good friend, texted with Ryan yesterday. Yeah, the idea was to use AI to help pick winners in mm-hmm. consumer brands. Is, it, is Lighthouse AI similar? In this case, it's similar in the sense that we're using it on the sourcing side, but we're also using it beyond that for assessment and diligence and running our investment process. We've been building it and iterating on it over the last two years. My first version of Lighthouse was an Excel spreadsheet in mid-2018. And what I was trying to get to with that Excel spreadsheet was really two things. One was what I was calling founder DNA at that time. So how do we assess, particularly a seed stage company where there isn't product market fit, there might even be a product at that point, it's just a team and an idea. Okay, we've got the founders now, we need to evaluate, how do we score them quantitatively? Because VCs talk about pattern recognition and gut reaction and so forth. And yes, that does contribute to the art aspects of this, but I always get back to the science. And the science for me was really critical. And upfront, I knew that data science coupled with deep expertise in FinTech and a macro top-down view on what subsectors and theses were gonna be investable was the only way we're gonna be able to get consistency in this business. And the early days of Lighthouse then morphed into hiring a head of data science, who then worked with me to build out Lighthouse as a technology platform, which has become our operating system. And we use it every single day. And so I can enter a LinkedIn URL into Lighthouse and it will show a score for that founder in a matter of seconds, A, B, C, D. A typical A founder is somebody who's been in FinTech largely their entire careers has founded and exited a business previously, largely went to top 25 type undergraduate institutions, typically come from technical backgrounds and spent long periods of time in prior roles, probably at a high growth FinTech before they started their prior company. And so there's about 50 attributes we look at on a weighted basis to come up with that score. And we're indexing to A and B founders. A B founder might have started a company previously that was a single or a zero. And that's all good from our perspective because they learned, they iterated, they grew, they understood how to raise capital, the mistakes they made, and they've taken those lessons forward. And our best performing companies have come from A and B founders. We've back tested it. It's about 92% correlated to our own portfolio. And then if you look at CB Insights top 250 list, it's about 85% correlated to top 250 on a priority basis. And so we're pretty excited about the machine learning and the AI we've built into Lighthouse on the sourcing engine side. The second part of my Excel spreadsheet, which is now fully automated, was how do you run a due diligence process that's robust but efficient? And how do you make that repeatable? And how do you make sure everybody on the team is running off that same checklist? And I started with an investment box much like at SoFi and other credit shops, you have a credit box. Our investment box has not changed since I started. It's been the same six criteria. First criteria has saved us more money than anything else, which is we only back repeat founders. So going back to that founder DNA, 
the one thing that both an A and B founder have in common is they've founded something else before. And if you only backed repeat founders in 2020, 2021, 2022, it means that you passed on FTX, Celsius Network, BlockFi, Bolt, Fast.com, and Robinhood in the late stage rounds, which was not attractive, and a number of other companies that have been really black eyes for our industry. And that is, for me, unequivocal. So if you can just stick with that first criteria, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> Certainly better than most. Never, you've never broken that rule. Never broken that rule. And where we've even modestly even thought about changing that, let's say if there's two founders, one has been a repeat founder, the other is a first timer, the CEO cannot be a first timer. And in cases where we, the CEO has been a first timer, we've had to be massively hands-on with that business. And in many cases, that CEO is, has transitioned out. And so it's a criteria we've stuck to religiously. The second criteria is it has to be a B2B SaaS plus business. A SaaS plus is a term we coined as a firm, and it means you've got software as a basis. You're selling real IP into the five end customers I, I touched on earlier, banks, asset and wealth managers, insurers, fintechs, and corporates. And then you're making some kind of plus. That could be interchange, it could be brokerage commissions, it could be lending spreads, it could be affiliate marketing, whatever it is, you're taking advantage of a broader and expanding network effect that in many cases is global. So in the public markets, this would be companies like Bill.com and Intuit, right? Those are the all SaaS plus companies. And very few people remember that Intuit has a $110 billion market cap. They've done pretty good. And they're selling software first and foremost, but they also are taking a piece and a VIG on all the rails that they support as well. And we love those types of business models. And it turns out that M&A investors and buyout firms or strategics, as well as public markets, also love these companies. And they apply a tech multiple to these businesses, whereas in consumer and SMB models, Lending Club, SoFi, unfortunately, Square, they apply typically one to two times revenue and assign more tangible book value attributes to those business models. And it turns out because those companies have gross margins in the teens versus in the 60 to 80% range, if they're cash burning, really hard to turn that around. It just doesn't work. And so for us, we've been extremely disciplined on those first two. And again, if you just follow those first two in fintech, you did really well and you've been more insulated than most. In our case, 90 plus percent of the market. The third is we have very specific benchmarks by stage. So if you're a seed stage company, you need to look like this from a metric standpoint versus a pre-IPO company where you need to have these types of metrics. Traditional kind of top decile SaaS metrics, things like net dollar retention, ACVs, growth rates, gross margins, those types of areas except that nobody bothered to create private company benchmarks. We have a ton of public equity comps, but nobody said, hey, this is what a great private company looks like. And we've made that information public. So in our navigator that we share publicly, the last one I actually posted a LinkedIn last week, you'll see those benchmarks for seed A and B companies. Because the inevitable question that we always get from founders is what metrics do I need to hit to, to raise my next round? And VCs have always made that as black box as possible because it's their, to their advantage to make it as black box as possible because then they have valuation control. And that's the third item. Fourth item is no regulatory risk, no balance sheet risk, no legal risk. 
We only take on execution risk because there we feel like with our operating playbook, we can change the outcome and de-risk the business. Next criteria is we need to be able to add value. If we are just passive capital and they're operating in a space that we don't know enough to have underwriting edge and add value in, it's not gonna make sense for us. And then last but not least, we are ESG managers. And so we provide an ESG overlay on everything we do, both upfront with the metrics we evaluate the company with. We have 10 ESG metrics that we use. And then we take those 10 metrics and we re-underwrite them ongoing. Because our view is if they're making progress against their ESG metrics and their financial metrics in parallel, they're gonna be better, more durable, long-term businesses. And so I made an effort to implement that upfront of the firm. And then we became a UN PRI signatory in Q1 of 2020. And the UN PRI featured us last year in a case study showing that, hey, they've come out, put metrics in the sand, created reporting that is repeatable and allows our companies to feel like they're progressing across those metrics, particularly on capital G governance, which was left by the wayside in the last three years. How should I think about the way that you interface with this? I'm thinking, of course, are there sliders on here? Can I play with the risk? Does it give you a risk number? Quantifying risk in a company is like four-dimensional in venture. I would say the way that we've used it is, one, the founder DNA score and sourcing. We're scraping everything on the internet to identify founders. So if you go on LinkedIn and you type into the top stealth, you're going to see hundreds and hundreds of thousands of companies that are in stealth. Well, that's interesting. What does stealth mean? Stealth means that there's a founder that's working on building a company and he or she does not want the world to know about it yet. So they've been pre-reveal, right? And so if you can identify those companies and you can filter off of companies that are likely in the fintech space and with the best founders who happen to be repeat founders, that's a pretty interesting subset of data. So we're taking that from LinkedIn, from Twitter, from PitchBook, from every possible public source, and we're filtering on B2B and repeat founders and the highest founder DNA. And it's incredible the companies that we discover as part of that process. And it's blind to DNI considerations and so forth. And so we're able to get the best founders, whoever they might be and wherever they might be. And then the second piece is the diligence framework. So imagine having a front end that allows you to see your entire portfolio, all of the metrics associated with that portfolio, revenue, ARR, and so forth. We also use a company called Standard Metrics, which I highly recommend, which is a portfolio company. They integrate with a company's operating bank accounts and their GL. So we have real visibility into cash and into their P&L numbers, which is hugely advantageous, both from a risk management standpoint, as well as in terms of just having a pulse on the portfolio. So we require all of our companies sign up for Standard Metrics, and that's given us far better visibility because they are taking the operating bank accounts and the PL and they're giving us complete transparency into actual burn, top line revenue, gap metrics versus getting it from the company where you're probably going to need to take a haircut. You're not sure what definitions they're using and so forth. Standard metrics, as the name implies, standardizes everything so that you have one view of the truth. That integrates into Lighthouse through an API. And so we have this portfolio management dashboard by fund, by stage, that gives us an incredible amount of visibility into what's happening in the portfolio, where we may need to spend more time, where we may want to play offense and so forth. 
and we have our investment memos there. We have all of our notes, all the documents, you name it. And we have a view of Lighthouse for our founders and a view of Lighthouse for our LPs. We have hundreds of LP users from the banks, the asset managers, the insurers, other fintechs and so forth that are love Lighthouse because to them, it's like their fintech Google. They can use it to get access to our research, third party research, market maps, and obviously the portfolio so they can engage in the right way. You plan to spin up Lighthouse? We are not. So today it's free to founders, free to LPs, and obviously the operating system and heartbeat for the firm. We have no plans to monetize it, much to my head of data science's chagrin, but the data is incredibly valuable. I could see in the future potential ways to monetize. It just wouldn't move the needle. We make our money off of performance and want to keep it that way. So I'm interested in how much it influences your evaluation discussions and your follow-on discussions and where does it fit in? Where does the discretion come in? Absolutely. Valuations, art and science, we've developed a framework for valuation, which is in our policy that allows us to apply discount companies where we feel like they're not meeting their number. There's significant discounts to public comps that are relevant, right? Some of our companies are very difficult to find actual public comps where there's not a large enough set. Traditional option pricing modeling and bottoms up analysis any impairment issues, cash position, vis-a-vis burn, rising competition, all these factors go into your valuation analysis. And we work with our auditor BDO and also third-party valuation experts, but all of them have their finger in the air when it comes to private markets. And so it's really about your methodology, your approach, making sure that it's fair and measured. Otherwise you get what happened in 2019 to 2021 where there was no real grounding in in truth and history around multiples and metrics, which creates all kinds of problems. And Lighthouse drives all of that discussion and the way that we have our schedule of investments or our SOI by fund then is really driven into Lighthouse. We see it there and we're making decisions on any haircuts that we want to take in enterprise value on a position by position basis and ensuring that we feel it's fairly valued. LPs react to that in different ways. Fund of funds really don't like it, right? Because you're impacting their performance and then they're showing that downstream to their own investors and you just giving them some consternation. Traditional pensions, endowments, foundations, very supportive because they want to be able to show actual marks and many of them have a denominator effect problem today in any case and making sure that their private marks are at least somewhat representative of their public marks is really critical to them and then family offices probably fall in that category but by and large what matters is the ultimate exit value and so where we're carrying the position today particularly when you think about our early stage funds being 10 year plus duration vehicles and our growth stage funds being six to eight year duration vehicles, we're in year five, coming into year five as a firm. So you have to take a long-term horizon. And what's always been amazing to me, I've heard a few other VCs make this comment in the last year, a lot of their best performing companies, and we haven't quite seen this yet in our portfolio, but I could imagine it, had near-death experiences and then came back and were their best performing companies ever. And you think about companies going sideways a little bit, recovering, and then hopefully catapulting from there, whether that's a pivot and a complete change in the business model, 
or a new management team, that can absolutely come to be, but it's how you react at those inflection points. And my most irritating, frustrating issue with my peer set are pure passive investors. They provide capital and the only communication with a company is around quarterly financials. They don't take an active board position. They don't want to be on the board. They don't want the risk. They just want to write checks and it's a sit on the side. It is a very popular strategy, and I think it is one that won't persist. And I believe we're in a barbelled world now as it comes when it comes to not only LP support and interest, but also durability in the model. We have the top tier generalist investors who have earned their seat in that brand equity and that positioning in the market. Regardless of the FTX outcome, Sequoia has obviously earned that position at the top of the pack and Thrive, certainly, and Founders Fund and so forth. They've been around the longest. They've built goodwill. They've had tremendous returns and outcomes, and they're still learning amazingly. And then you have the other side of that equation, which are the specialists. As I made the comment earlier, Cambridge Associates and a number of others on the third-party research side have shown that specialists outperform generalists with less risk. And that's in really four categories now. It's healthcare, biotech, increasingly climate tech, and now fintech. And within fintech, LPs have a choice. They can invest in really three groups of players. One group of players are investing in consumer and SMB-oriented business models. Those have had some success early in the fintech lifecycle, but not as much as of late, and certainly have made really problematic public companies and less interesting M&A outcomes. Crypto native, we all know what's happening to those players. And then third is more the B2B picks and shovels, infrastructure investors. And you have two classes there. One class are focused more on just pure payments and B2B players that exemplify more of a take rate business model, like a company like Stripe or a Marketa in the public markets. And then players like ourselves, where we really stand alone and our focus on B2B SaaS plus businesses. And so it's a really interesting time to be an LP. And obviously beyond those models, there's nuance in terms of the relationship with the VC, their approach to operating value, which hopefully is robust and repeatable. And then third, frankly, just their hygiene as it relates to communication, reporting, and how often they come back to market. I think in 2020, 2021, you had a number of GPs who put all of their net upfront capital, so roughly 50% of their early stage fund with 50% reserved, assuming, they put it out in six months, right? If you did that in 2021, you're underwater. And for me, we got to get back to the fundamentals, both on the diligence side, the operating value side, and in the way that we treat our portfolios and our LPs from a portfolio construction standpoint, which means that you have to have a defined investment period and stick to it and deploy somewhat evenly over that investment period so that you get vintage diversification so that you can deploy in a measured and paced way and do the right level of diligence, do the right level of work. And we've continued to really preach that from our perspective. And my hope is that we have reversion to the mean on that on a go forward basis. So the classic venture question is always product versus people. Even with Lighthouse AI, if a very hairy team, so to speak, brought you an excellent product, would you make the same decision? I think it all comes back to people every single time. 
And that's why we call it founder DNA and not product DNA, because you could have the best looking, coolest looking product, but if you can't raise capital and you can't execute on go to market, then you're not gonna have a real business. And execution is absolutely everything and execution takes the right people. And in our view, it's people who have done it before. So can you give us the skinny on why venture firms are registering as RIAs? So we believe that all VC firms should register as RIAs, full stop. I think the SEC certainly has been making the right moves to supporting that view as well. The ERA, or exempt reporting advisor, requirement is, forgive me, kind of a joke. You're filling out a Form ADV with very basic information that could fit on a Post-it note, and that's it. And that doesn't provide LP protection. It doesn't provide comfort for founders. And it certainly shouldn't provide comfort for regulators, given that those companies are raising hundreds of millions of dollars and deploying them into private companies that could have systemic risks. And so with an RAA, it's the right thing to do as you institutionalize the business. You want to take on more institutional capital, but it also gives you some flexibility on the product side. I mentioned our public strategy. We raised a SPAC in October of 2021. We might be a one and done SPAC sponsor, given that the structure has definitely evolved and not in the right ways from a sponsor perspective. Certainly, I believe in the right ways from a market and regulatory standpoint as they've fallen out of favor. And then secondly, in Q4 of last year, not for public capital, but rather for GP capital, at least initially, we raised a long-only equity vehicle. And this really was the capstone on our full life cycle pre-seed to public investing approach, which has all kinds of advantages in terms of asymmetric information, be able to invest when the time is right, be able to support the best companies throughout and so on. But market timing-wise, we didn't feel like there was going to be a better time, perhaps in the history of our firm, to start a long-only equity vehicle. And so we are making investments in a concentrated set of companies in the B2B fintech space and adjacent in the public markets. And we'll keep that as GP capital only through end of next year before we even consider whether we're good at this and can take on external capital at that point. As long as we're talking about RIAs, what are your thoughts on the whole alternatives going mainstream movement, platforms like iCapital and Opto? So we think that Certainly for accredited QPs and RIAs, it's an important move. It's a great time to be considering alternatives given the market correction and the likely vintage success of 2022, 23, and 24, much like some of the best vintages in venture were 2008 to 2010. And so as RIAs and these high net worths look at diversification away from the 60-40 model, which obviously dramatically underperformed last year, they need to look at uncorrelated alpha where they're getting diversification across a whole host of alternative asset classes. And it's got to be venture and private equity and real estate and all credit and so forth. Certainly some hedge funds started to reperform last year, Citadel and others in particular. And so we think that's an important trend line. It's very difficult from a diligence process subscription and reporting standpoint for those larger players and alternative managers to provide access to is and to high net worths and so forth. 
And so having a technology intermediary really makes sense. And Opto, where we're investors led by Mark Manchin, who has deep credibility as an LP himself, I think are the future, particularly for that RIA channel, who have really struggled to not only asset allocate and figure out what an alternative asset allocation looks like, but then go out and find best-in-class managers. And you don't want RIAs out there having adverse selection problems and simply taking the managers that are coming into their doors. And so you'd rather they have the tools that they need to make those decisions. And so we believe that democratization of access is healthy for the industry. We'll obviously require regulatory and infrastructure but those will all come through traditional RIA constructs, and we think that's terrific. And we will also, on our end, take advantage of those. So we're investors in another company called Byte Investments, which is more focused on QPs and accredited access to funds. And our last fund cycle was listed on their platform, and Goldman and Carlisle and others have listed on their platform. So clearly, if you see the success of a number of these, there's going to be continued interest in building those companies. And hopefully that's a net positive for the industry. What do you think of the businesses themselves from a competitive standpoint? There has been a proliferation of these platforms. How does it not become a race to the bottom on fees? Right. Yeah. Fund to fund businesses have always been challenging, I believe. I think they are good businesses so long as they're selling software first, access second. And so if they can build the technology tools for data rooms, diligence processes, facilitating FAQs and Q&As and content, and then the ongoing reporting and management of that portfolio, then that's a huge positive. And they will need to be charging for that software first and then access and overlay fees to the manager second which to your point, I think will get compressed and have been compressed historically. So that's why we invested in both Opto and Byte was a view that this is important software and there's gonna be a strong willingness to pay by the managers, by the institutional distribution channels, and then ultimately via the end investors themselves. So Marcus at Goldman was very much in the news last year. And you, of course, remember your days at City National. I wonder how you think the big banks are trying to stay relevant in the era of the neobank. So I think all the banks have realized they can't build these neobanks themselves. Acquiring a consumer fintech business is fraught with issues. We've had, obviously, Marcus being formed by the acquisition of Clarity Money. The minute you acquire one of those B2C businesses, the value of that business evaporates as soon as the founders leave, right? Because you can have a very cool iframes and product and apps, but then you lose all the talent and extraordinarily talented fintech entrepreneurs absolutely do not want to work inside of banks. Banks will never be able to affect the culture that is needed, the compensation that is needed and the upside incentives and wealth creation that the best entrepreneurs need to thrive and scale. And so acquiring consumer businesses, hugely problematic. Clarity Money at Goldman, Frank at JP Morgan, where it turned out the CEO, another one we passed on, was lying about the makeup of her consumer base, which is just com- completely inexcusable, both inexcusable on her and the company's part, but also inexcusable on the diligence that was not done, obviously. And then secondly, what I would say the conclusion is, the banks have realized they need to partner and rent and license software from fintech B2B software providers, like in JP Morgan's case, the very successful partnership with Greenlight, where they built 
a first product for Gen Zers and families, and then they just canceled it and they blew it up. And then they went and partnered with Greenlight because they recognized that in serving families, serving Gen Zers, they were far better off renting that technology. And that's been a hugely successful partnership for both sides. And the same can be said across the board in terms of banks partnering both from a revenue distribution standpoint. So these are more revenue-oriented opportunities for the bank where they're leveraging technology to go out to their built-in customer base to make them stickier, more profitable, and so forth. And they're not building that technology internally. And then secondly, for operational efficiencies and so forth, which was an exponential part of the adoption curve in COVID because suddenly nobody could go into branches and call centers and so forth. So they recognized they needed to bring in software to affect all those processes, things like customer service, new account opening, underwriting automation, and so forth. Logan, you mentioned your favorite book last year was a biography of Churchill. What did you learn from Churchill? It takes a lot of baths. <laughs> I'm not big on baths, so that was a little weird. A lot of drinking. Certainly, I think we all probably had a lot of... These are not two things that I have strictly followed. It was just things I learned about Churchill. I learned from him, so that was more about him. And there was a lot about him, which was fascinating. Because you just assume leaders are on the straight and narrow and that they're doing everything right. But behind the scenes, they, they really look like a duck and they're frantically trying to salvage what they can and do what's right, even in the face of significant uncertainty and really hard decisions. I think, you know, what... What I learned from him is that venture is very much a contact sport and it is extremely difficult. A lot of founders, other asset classes and managers think what we do is, is very passive and it can be. And again, going back to my prior point, I, I don't believe in that model. But if you're an active VC and you're rolling up your sleeves every day on behalf of your founders, this is a really difficult job. Your emotions can get wildly kind of sign curved unless you have done this for a long time in which case you control your emotions you recognize what you can and can't control and you do your absolute best on behalf of the founder and the shareholders in every instance but it is these types of market cycles starting in 2022 and certainly carrying forward here into 2023 which we think is going to be even more of an acute pain than 2022 for both private and public markets you really have to demonstrate that you are more than capital and that you are there for the management teams with advice, with business development, with corporate development, with capital and capital raising hands-on and support on the debt side. And if you can't show that consistently, you're gonna have companies that fail. And that is a very difficult position to be in and the worst feeling in the world. And imagining Churchill in the bunkers, and I actually went and visited the bunkers in June in London, and you're hitting your head on the ceiling effectively and imagining him being in there for years. It makes you feel a lot better that this is controllable. This is not life or country ending, but something that you have to get up every day and run through walls around, much like he did for his country. And that was really inspiring. Finally, what advice do you give to a fintech founder? Start a B2B SaaS plus business. Do not start a consumer business. Do not start an SMB business. And certainly right now, do not start a crypto business. If you want to be a fintech founder and you have a passionate idea, figure out ways to make the business model work too. 
I think founders will often just run after an idea and not think about the long-term consequences of the actual business model. And that is fundamental. Secondly, in terms of our market outlook, as I mentioned, we think 2023 is going to be more pain. There's going to be significant forced consolidation in M&A. That will be driven by both strategics and buyout players. We've already seen Tama and Vista be very active here in the last year. Third, IPO markets are largely going to be shuttered except for highly profitable businesses. In tech, cash-burning businesses need not apply. And as a result, we think the IPO market this year is going to be very limited and that we see recovery both from a rate compression, relief on inflation kicking off in the first half of 2024 and the next market cycle starting in 24, which means that in 23, you have to continue to play defense, be thoughtful about runway, be thoughtful about burn, raise bridge rounds, whether those are flat or recapped or a safe note or a convert and or layering in venture debt, be thoughtful about the rest of this year. And as we've seen, tech cuts are a fact of life right now. And I think very necessary in sustaining these businesses for the long term. And the leaders at these companies are having to make those hard choices. Their boards should be fully behind them. Logan, this has been great. Thanks for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Great to see you. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.